0: Uh, For those of you that are joining us online, we are so glad that you're joining us for our study of God's Word. And also our friends at First Baptist Church of Arco, Idaho, and First Baptist Church of Kalispell, Montana, and the Hangar in Marion, Montana, we are so glad they are joining us for our study today as well. Now, we're doing a study that today it's called Men of Purpose, and really this is unusual. It's not like our normal series, like next Sunday, for example, I'll be teaching and we'll get back uh, to the Gospel of John. a chapter by chapter chronological series uh, through the Gospel of John. I'll get back to that uh, next Sunday, but this series is more. Like it comes and goes on special days. So for example, if this were Mother's Day, we'd call it Women of Purpose. Because it's Father's Day today, we call it Men of Purpose. If it were Memorial Day, sometimes I'll do these historical studies on Memorial Day weekend, we would call it People of Purpose. But what I love to do, because I love history and I love the Bible, and I love to pick out historical characters and show how biblical principles were lived out in their lives. Now I find because it's history, and some people, that's not their cup of tea, it's helpful to have a couple of different voices. But I'm telling you, I, I love Pastor Greg because none of the other preaching team will ever do one of my historical sermons with me. They just like, Glenn, that's your thing. We don't want any part of that. But Pastor Greg loves history like I do. So, Pastor Greg, you're my favorite pastor here today. I I want you to do. You're my kind of guy. Now, today we're going to look at Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Uh, was born in 1906, died at the age of 39 in 1945. And here's the cool title for him and for his life: the anti. Nazi spy and Hitler assassin pastor. How cool is that? Look at his picture. What a bad looking dude he is uh, right there. You know, how do you like me now? You know, that that picture of Dietrich Bonhoeffer. We're going to get to it in just a moment, but I want to give you our theme verse for being a man of purpose. And of course, this applies to everybody, men, women, boys, and girls. But today being Father's Day, I want to talk about this as a theme verse for being a man of purpose. Ephesians 5, be very careful then how you live. Not as unwise, but as wise. Making the most of every opportunity. Seizing every opportunity to change your world for Christ. Every opportunity for eternity. Every opportunity to serve other people. To serve God. To share Christ. Making the most of every opportunity because the days are evil. That is, there's a lot of false messages out in our culture and society that will tell you that matters of eternity don't matter that much. They're not worth your time and effort and energy. And telling you that other things are very important. And they are worth your time, even though they're gone. They're here today, gone tomorrow, kind of a flash in the pan uh, kind of thing. Let me give you an example of a cultural message. And, and I don't know if you've seen this commercial or not. I've seen it a bunch of times. I think it's part of it's on the NBA Finals. So if you're watching the NBA Finals and uh, God's Quest for Steph Curry against the evil LeBron James, if you're watching uh, that particular thing, just kidding, you people from Cleveland, don't walk out on me. But at any rate, um, if, if you've been watching that, you've seen this commercial um, a, a bunch of times. Okay, here's the cultural message behind that. The younger generation, okay, Gen Xers, Millennialists, are rejecting the values of boomers, my generation, and the builder generation, saying our generation was all about it's what you have. That's what will give you satisfaction. And they have correctly watched the lives of their parents and grandparents and said, you know what, that's not really true. It's not what you have. That doesn't lead to lasting satisfaction. And they have correctly rejected that. But they've replaced it with what have you done? It's about the experiences of life. It's about having exciting have-dones in your life. That will bring you lasting fulfillment. And I would maintain that that is just as bogus as the haves. Neither the haves nor the have-dones have ultimate lasting satisfaction and a sense of purpose within your life. Now, do not I don't want to be a spoil sport. Don't get me wrong. I like having certain things. I like having done certain things. But that will not bring us uh, lasting satisfaction. Do an experiment. I did this in my life uh, a couple of weeks ago, uh, thinking about this commercial. Um, uh, did it to my own life. And I want you to do the same. And let me give you a chance to, to think it through in your life. Think of the coolest thing that you ever have had. What's the what's the nicest thing you've ever you've you've had? Uh, let me let me just uh, you know nicest possession, the nicest house, the nicest car, whatever. Let, let me while you're thinking about it, let me tell you mine. The best thing I've ever had is my Ford Flex. I I love this car. Now, I'm not a car guy at all. I'm the kind of person that can hardly remember when they ask you what's the make and model of your car, I never know. It's like, all I know is I get in it and it gets me to another place. That's all I know. But this car was different. I fell in love with this car. Kimberly found it uh, online at a CarMax um, up in Fresno, California. We went up there a few summers ago and it was like 110 degrees. And we went up and it had about 24,000 miles on it. So it was a used Flex up at this uh, CarMax up in Fresno. And I tell you, I, I, I just love this car. It's got all these bells and whistles I've never had before. It's got satellite radio. It's, it's, it's got uh, GPS. It, it's got a Bluetooth. I mean, it's just got all these cool things. And so I fell in love with it, my car. Now, I want to tell you something. There is not one molecule within me that thinks, boy, isn't it good that Glenn Gunderson was born so that he could have that car? There's nothing within me. I'd even rack my mind to think, what is the favorite thing that I have had? Okay, let's replace it with have-dones. Think of the coolest thing you've ever done. Right now, bring it to mind. What's the coolest thing you've ever done? And while you're thinking, uh, I'll tell you mine. Uh, My sons, John and Andrew, Noah wasn't here yet. So John and Andrew, when they were little boys, one night in the middle of the night, Uh, in Egypt, at the foot of Mount Sinai, we hiked in the dark to the top of Mount Sinai so we could see the sunrise from the top of Mount Sinai. Okay, that's pretty cool. But I had to rack my brain to even remember that I had done that. There's not one ounce within me that says, isn't it good that Glenn Gunderson was born so that he could hike to the top of Mount Sinai and, and see that sunrise. And so don't get me wrong, these are cool things, but they don't bring that lasting sense that your life is meaningful, significant, and that lasting scent, sense of, of purpose. Um, both of these are bogus. Now, if you want to read the fuller version of the analysis of that commercial, Book of Ecclesiastes, before you go to bed tonight, it'll take about a half an hour to read the Book of Ecclesiastes. And it was about a guy that, uh, named Solomon who had it all and who has done it all. And he still came up with this conclusion the words of the teacher, son of David, king in Jerusalem, meaningless, meaningless, says the teacher, utterly meaningless, everything is meaningless. Now, he gives us a third option. It's not what you have. It's not what you have done. It is what have you done for eternity. That's the third option. He says in chapter 3, verse 11, he, God, has made everything beautiful in its time he has also set eternity in the human heart. You know why what you have doesn't satisfy you? Because you've got eternity stamped on your heart. You know why the cool things you have done in your life, the cool vacations, the cool uh, trips or whatever, you know why that doesn't bring lasting satisfaction? Because you have eternity stamped on your heart. And only that which is done for eternity is gonna bring lasting satisfaction. So here's my nickname for the men that show up at church on Father's Day. I'm going to call you the men of Issachar. First Chronicles chapter 12, in the middle of some obscure genealogies in the Bible. If you've ever done a Bible reading program like me, whenever you see genealogies, you think to yourself, it's time to catch up on my Bible reading program. You know, I'm always behind. I don't know about you, but I'm always behind. And so when I see a, a, a chronology or a genealogy, I'll say, good, I can skim through this and catch up with my Bible reading program and only be 10 days behind rather than 20 days behind. And so, I okay, can't. but be careful because there are some nuggets in those obscure genealogical charts these are the numbers of the men armed for battle that's who you are that are here today you guys you're my heroes you're men armed for battle who came to david at hebron to turn saul's kingdom over to him what bad dudes they are they turn a kingdom over to king saul they the king saul's kingdom they turn it over to king david As the Lord had said, Matthew 6.33, I just used it um, uh, for one of the children that was just dedicated, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you as well. They, They sought first God's kingdom and they turned the kingdom over to David from Issachar, men who understood the times and knew what Israel should do. The men of Issachar, they understood the times in which they lived And they knew what Israel, God's people, today the church, the new Israel, they knew what we should do. They understood the times. They knew what we should do, which is to make the most of every opportunity. Be very careful then how you live. Don't waste it just on the haves. Don't waste it just on the have-dones, but invest your life in the have-dones for eternity. Anybody want to say amen to that? Now, a perfect example of this is Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Talk about a man who understood the times and knew what Israel should do. My gracious. He understood the times, the rise of Nazis, and he decided what he should do is try to assassinate Adolf Hitler. Now, how's that for a man of Issachar? he runs that delicate balance between love of country and love of God. Uh, As a German, he loved his country. He, he loved his government. He supported his leaders. But there came a time where he had to choose God, love of God, over love of country. Now, it's a balance between two passages in the Bible. Romans 13 and Acts chapter 4. Romans 13. Let everyone be subject to the governing authorities for there is no authority except that which God has established. Love your country, support the, the authorities. Okay, you say, oh, uh, Paul wrote that. He didn't know. He didn't know about our government today. What is it, about 10 or 15% of Americans think that our uh, government is healthy uh, today, you know. Uh, they didn't know about our government. Are you kidding me? When he wrote this, Nero, the most despicable man that ever lived, basically the Hitler of his time, was the dictator of the Roman Empire. They would love to have our government today when Paul wrote this, the Christians. They would have loved to have our government. Uh, The authorities that exist have been established by God. Consequently, whoever rebels against the authority is rebelling against what God has instituted. And those who do so will bring judgment on themselves. For rulers hold no terror for those who do right, but for those who do wrong. Okay, let me illustrate what I'm talking about. You're driving along a highway you crest the hill, and as you crest the hill, there's a police officer in his car hidden in the bushes off to the right. You have a moment of terror, and you do two things, right? First, you take your foot off of what? The accelerator, exactly. You pull it off, and then you look at your speedometer. And if it is under the speed limit, you breathe a sigh of relief, and the terror is gone. If it is over the speed limit, especially by five miles an hour, now your terror continues. You go by the police officer, and then what do you look at? Your rearview mirror. Dear God, no lights, no lights, no lights, no lights, dear God, no lights, no lights. Okay. Um, And this has happened to me before. And I've seen the lights, which the pastors will tell you is just absolutely impossible because I am known as the slowest driver of our pastoral team. Right, Pastor Greg? I mean, if we go out to lunch together, if Glenn's driving factor in an extra 15 minutes getting there and an extra 15 minutes getting back. But, but, But here's the thing, Pastor Greg, speeder. For rulers hold no terror for those who do the speed limit, but for those who do not obey the speed limit. Do you want to be free from the one in authority? Then do what is right, and you'll be commended. For the one in authority is God's servant for the good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for rulers do not bear the sword for no reason. They are God's servants, agents of wrath to bring punishment on the wrongdoer. Therefore, it is necessary to submit to the authorities, not only because of possible punishment, but also as a matter of conscience. Now, uh, we're going to balance that out now with Acts chapter 4 is the balancer uh, of that whole passage. And we're going to do that in a couple of weeks. We have our patriotic musical. And by the way, if you've never been to this, this is an ideal, what we call an oikos opportunity. Oikos, Greek word um, for household. It means the 8 to 15 in your sphere of influence. And let me ask you, do you have anybody in your Oikos that loves their country and feels any patriotism at all? This is a perfect thing. It's on 4th of July weekend, July 3rd, the day before the 4th of July. And we have our patriotic musical here. We only do it every other year. It's only every two years. So you only get this chance once every 24 months. Once every two years, you get this chance. And we're very, very careful. I mean, I, I read the narration, but it's written by John Burroughs, the director of our orchestra and choir. And if you read the narration, it's very nuanced to say that we love our country, but we love God more. Okay, We love our country, but if push comes to shove between our country and God, we will follow our conscience and God over Following our country, okay, we love our country, and so what happens is it's just like you can come celebrate Christmas in the Christmas musical. What do we do? We start with a love of secular Christmas music, and we use that as a bridge to to sharing the story of Jesus. And the same thing happens in the patriotic musical. We start with a common love of country. So you invite a friend that may not know Jesus, but they love their country, and we start from that place, and then we build a bridge to a love of God, and it's an excellent opportunity to come and bring a friend along with you. At 830 and 945, we have our regular worship service at 1111. So for those that prefer a regular worship service, it'll be regular worship. And I'll be preaching from the book of John at the 1111 service. But at 830 and 945, really encourage you to seize the moment and take advantage. Now here's the balancer. Love your country. Obey the authorities. But Acts 4, so they, this is the authorities, the Jewish authorities, did the disciples love Israel, their nation? Absolutely. Did they submit to the authorities, the leaders? Absolutely. So they called the apostles back and commanded them never again to speak or teach in the name of Jesus. But here's the exception. When the two come in conflict with each other, Peter and John replied, do you think God wants us to obey you rather than him? We cannot stop telling about everything we have seen and heard. Now, if anybody treaded that balance delicately, it was Dietrich Bonhoeffer. He loved his country, loved Germany, but he loved God more, even to the point of being involved in a plot to assassinate Adolf Hitler. Now, another thing he's known for is the danger of cheap grace. Cheap grace is a term we use to say, when people say, um, oh, I sinned, God, forgive me, forgive me, forgive me, forgive me, and then we just go back and sin right again. We just kind of like say, just send up a storm, and it doesn't really matter, and just keep saying, God, sorry, do it, sorry, do it, sorry. Whereas he says, the opposite of cheap grace is full repentance, where we say, God, I'm so sorry I did that. Would you forgive me? Would you empower me not to do it again? Now, if I do it again, which I often will, there's still grace there. God forgives our sins, past, present, and future. But we don't take it cheaply, the death of Jesus on the cross for our sins, we don't, we don't engage in cheap grace. God, full repentance, I'm so sorry. Help me not to do it again. And we avoid cheap grace and we take it seriously even though that grace is infinite and it is there for us every time that we need it. Dietrich Bonhoeffer was born in Roklaw, Poland in 1906 and raised in the Lutheran Church. Um uh, he was born to a very smart and prestigious family. His father was the most famous psychiatrist in Germany in the first half of the 20th century. You say, what about Sigmund Freud? He was Austrian. So Sigmund Freud was the most famous psychiatrist in the first half of the 20th century in Austria, and Dietrich Bonhoeffer's father was the most famous psychiatrist in Germany during the first uh, half of the 20th century. His oldest brother helped Albert Einstein split the atom when he was 23 years old. How would you like to follow him in the classroom? Oh, you're so-and-so's little brother, the guy that split the atom with Albert Einstein at the age of 23. When he was eight years old, World War I started, and his brother Walter was killed in 1917. Now, as a result of this, his mother suffers a nervous breakdown, and that had a huge impact on Dietrich. Dietrich. He decided to pursue a career in theology at the age of 13. Uh, James chapter 1 verse 12 was his confirmation class verse uh, in the Lutheran church. And confirmation his class verse really foreshadowed his life. Blessed is the one who perseveres under trial because having stood the test, that person will receive the crown of life that the Lord has promised to those who love him. He receives his Ph.D. at the age of 21 from Berlin University. Gets his Ph.D. at the age of 21. And Pastor Greg, my favorite pastor, take it away. There you go.
1: His PhD at the age of 21, I don't know about you, but as I think about what I had accomplished at 21, it certainly wasn't a PhD, and uh, he was also an accomplished pianist and could have been a professional musician, so he was well on his way on this track where he could have uh, followed in line with his, uh, his family members before him of being a superstar in his career, but we see that Bonhoeffer chose to leave a different sort of legacy. And I want to take some time just to look at, at what he chose to make his life all about. After he received his, his Ph.D., he took some time to come to America and to uh, do some more studies at Union Theological Seminary in New York. And during his nine months there in New York, he befriended a fellow student, an African-American from Alabama, uh, Frank Fisher. And Frank Fisher invited him to attend with him a black Baptist church in Harlem. And when he visited and experienced that church, uh, it shaped him and changed him for the rest of his life. Uh, he, he went to a church and he, he, he experienced a church that wasn't just uh, people attending church or people being religious or people going through the motions. He, he found a church where, where it was a church that was being the church. We, he saw people living out their faith and their daily lives in a way that was, was different from anything that he experienced in the church before that. The singing and, and worship was, was alive and powerful. And, and for most of these people, their lives were, were very difficult. But they worshipped a God who was, who was real and alive and, and, and uh, present and personal in their lives. It wasn't just a philosophical or theological belief. Instead, it was something that was transforming their lives. And, and their pastor, Adam Clayton Powell, exhorted the church to, to, let, uh, to follow after Christ in a way that would let the, uh, the, the truth of Christ, the love of Christ, to permeate their lives in every aspect of their lives. James chapter 2, verse 14 says, What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save them? Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to them, go in peace and keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about their physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. Bonhoeffer experienced and observed this kind of faith in action in the church that he was a part of. They cared for the poor and the needy, and he saw them living out a a faith of becoming more and more like Jesus in their daily lives. It must have been quite a sight to to picture uh, this blonde, bespeckled German academic there integrated in the life of this black church uh, in, in Harlem in the 30s, and he became very involved in the life of the church during his time there. And he also became involved in the budding issues of of civil rights, which he had no idea at that time, but would prepare him for the horrors he would experience and confront later of the treatment of the Jews in Germany. Well, the experience of those nine months uh, he spent in the U.S. uh, changed him. They had a profound effect on him. He had tasted what it was like to be a part of a church that was being the church. What does it mean to, to be the church? That's really what uh, we as your pastors have been wrestling with uh, the past few months. And uh, two weeks ago, if you were here, we shared uh, statements of our vision and our mission, and our values, describing what we feel God is leading us to, what it means to be the church for this time and this place. Uh, If you weren't here, we have uh, copies of the vision and mission and value statements at the the guest centers. You might notice that this one is actually uh, laminated, uh, not like the ones out there. And I I love uh, Ed Lopez. Uh, He's part of our rooted group. And he came back last Sunday and he was talking about his excitement about not just hearing the message, but actually living it out. And so he went out and laminated the vision, mission and value statement uh, so that he could keep it with him and live that out. Well, when Bonhoeffer returned to Germany in the summer of 1931, it was clear to his friends that something had changed, that he had changed. Before he left, his, his mind and his theology was in the right place. But now his, his heart and his life were engaged in a way that was making such a, a profound difference in his life. And so uh, he began teaching again there in, in uh, Berlin. And as he was teaching, he began to refer to the Bible as God's word. Now, this is something that, that we're used to hearing a Bible referred to as God's Word, but it wasn't, no one else was doing that at that time. And as he taught, uh, he taught that uh, God was alive and real and that, that the Word of God was alive, and that's how God spoke to us. Hebrews 4, verse 12. For the Word of God is alive and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts And attitudes of the heart. Bonhoeffer was teaching his students that the the whole reason to study and to to read the Bible uh, was not to to just read the text and get more information about God, but instead it was to read the text, to, to see and to hear the heart of God that was behind the text. The Christian experience that he began to teach about and speak about and, and preach about was, was one that wasn't just a, a set of beliefs to uh, have in your mind, but instead a life-changing relationship with Jesus, following after him their whole lives. He took his students away on, on retreats so they could learn how to pray, not just to read about prayer and to talk about prayer, but to experience prayer. They were going to the Bible and to prayer, uh, to live out and to communicate with God in a living active relationship with Jesus well Bonhoeffer had changed but Germany had changed too when he returned the Nazis were quickly rising to political power and it's hard for us to imagine but at that time most of the Germans couldn't see the the evil man uh, that Hitler was Hitler had presented himself as a man of peace. He claimed to be following God's will, and, and he uh, was promising uh, to, to bring them out of the terrible economic pit that they had fallen into. Hitler proclaimed that the Germans had lost World War I because of the, uh, they had been betrayed from within by the, the communists and the Jews, and now they had to rid the country of all of those people. The average German was was too, only too willing to, to follow after Hitler because it gave them hope and, and nothing could be worse than what they were experiencing right now. Bonhoeffer was one of the very few who recognized the, the evil path that Hitler was taking the country. And he was uh, leading, one of the uh, leading, only leading Germans who, who spoke out against Hitler and against the evil. Isaiah 5.20 says, woe, woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Romans 12 21 says, Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. What an example of standing against evil Bonhoeffer was. Just two days after Hitler was, uh, became the chancellor in 1933, Bonhoeffer gave a famous speech on the radio attacking the whole Führer principle. Most Germans had no idea that Hitler despised Christianity. Because he kept it secret. He, he saw Christianity as a, a weak religion and he wanted to get rid of it in Germany, but he couldn't do that because all of the Germans considered themselves uh, Lutheran Christian. M- most all of them considered themselves Lutheran Christians. And so he pretended to be a, a Christian and uh, began to, 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 to plot a way, uh, step by step to, to um, put the church under his control. What he did is he brought all the churches together and he, he, he combined them to make a, a state church that had to uh, be under his authority. And step by step, without drawing attention to it, uh, he took over the, the church. People didn't realize it because uh, it was until it was too late uh, in the church. Bonhoeffer tried in every way to wake up the church, especially uh, in regards to the treatment of the Jews. Uh, after years and years of trying that, Bonhoeffer finally was a leader in in, uh, leading pastors and churches to to withdraw from the the German state church and to start something called the the Confessing Church. In some ways, the formation of the Confessing Church was a victory for Christians, but Bonhoeffer realized that if the church didn't wake up to the evil that was there and do everything to eradicate it, that almost everything would be lost. Martin Niemoller, who was Bonhoeffer's friend and a colleague in the Confessing Church, uh, was someone who saw it happening but realized he saw it too late. And he wrote this famous statement that there is there in your outline. First, they came for the socialists, and I did not speak out because I was not a socialist. Then they came for the trade unionists, and I did not speak out because I was not a trade unionist. Then they came for the Jews, and I did not speak out because I was not a Jew. Then they came for me. And there was no one left to speak for me. Because Bonhoeffer was such a, a lone voice, it, it's easy to, to picture him as, as kind of a, a lone ranger, a, a, a one who was able to stand for, uh, for against evil all by himself. But that's not what Bonhoeffer was all about. He was anything about living his Christian life in isolation or standing alone. Instead, he was all about living out his faith in community. Hebrews ten twenty four says, And let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds. And let us not neglect our meeting together, as some people do, but encourage one another, especially now that the day of his return is drawing near. Bonhoeffer lived out these verses. He was intentional about living in community and living out his faith in community. In 1935, he, he uh, started an, a legal movement to train future leaders for the confessing church by, by living together in a community of faith. They, they uh, draw together and they, they formed a, a circle of relationships where they, they discussed the Bible and prayed together and encouraged each other and challenged each other and served uh, together and lived life together. The years he spent doing this are thought of as the, the golden age of Bonhoeffer, and it was during this time he wrote the classic book, Life Together. At Purpose Church, we're committed to, to follow after the example of, of what uh, Bonhoeffer did in his time and what we're to do in our time, of being committed to, to being the church, of being able to approach the God, God's word and prayer as a, as a communication, as an opportunity to live out a vital relationship with Jesus, of, of taking stands against evil and of, of living out our faith in community. At the heart of our mission statement uh, is that we are to connect with God as we, as we connect with others and connect others with God in those relationships. And also uh, as one of our values that I talked about, we are better together, living out our faith in community where we, we form those circles of relationships where we challenge and encourage each other to become more and more like Jesus. Well, eventually the Gestapo shut down this discipleship community and Bonhoeffer attempted to continue it by, by gathering them in an underground movement, uh, but eventually they shut that down as well. And so he realized that uh, in 1938, with the, the war clouds on the horizon, Bonhoeffer knew that, it, he couldn't, um, that he couldn't fight in Hitler's army, but if he were to speak out against the army and against the war and against Hitler, then he would get the rest of the confessing church in trouble. And so he finally had a way out in 1939 when he was given an invitation to come back to the U.S. to teach at Union Theological Seminary. And so he got on a ship and he headed to America. But no sooner did he get on that ship, but he, he realized that he would made a mistake. He, he realized that he needed to go back and was convinced that his, he needed to go back with his people, knowing that that would mean uh, persecution and danger and possibly death. Uh, and so just 26 days after he landed in, in the U.S., uh, he got back on a boat and sailed back to Germany. When he returned, uh, uh, he took a stand against the evil of, of Hitler in a different way. as, uh, as he, Through family connections, he was able to become, get a post as a German military intelligence agent, secretly working with a, people, a group of people that were double agents. So this pastor theologian is now living out his faith as a spy. And here's Glenn with the rest of the story.
0: Here we go. Home stretch. Bonhoeffer becomes engaged to Maria von Weddenmeyer in the spring of 1943, you'll see her picture there. Uh, he was 36 and she was 18. He met her when she was 12 years old, but obviously didn't notice her. She was a child. He comes back six years later. And he's like, whoa, she just grew up. And so at the she's 18, he's 36. They get uh, engaged. But just a few days after their engagement, in April of 1943, he's arrested at his parents' home in Berlin for his involvement in a plan to save the lives of 14 Jews by smuggling them out of the country to Switzerland. He's imprisoned at the Tegel Military Prison. You'll see a picture of that there, where he wrote his famous book, Letters and Papers, from prison. On July 20th, 1944, the Valkyrie assassination attempt on Hitler failed, and he was a part of that assassination plot, and that becomes discovered later on. And Maybe you've seen that in the movie with Tom Cruise. I think it's called Valkyrie, and they attempted to assassinate uh, Hitler, but it failed. In October 1944, he was transferred to the Gestapo's underground high-security prison, but he was moved to Buchenwald concentration camp in February of 1945 due to the bombing of Berlin by Allied planes. Bonhoeffer was executed at the Flossenberg concentration camp on the direct orders of Adolf Hitler on April 9th, 1945, and here's what's so sad, two weeks before the Allies liberated his camp and three weeks before Hitler's suicide and the end of World War II. Now, it's tempting to say, what a tragic life. One of the assistants that was pulling together the study outline for me said, this is this is so sad. Well, Bonhoeffer would say, absolutely not. This is not sad at all. This is victory. This is triumph. In an earlier sermon that he wrote, he preached on death in 1933, He said, no one has yet believed in God and the kingdom of God. No one has yet heard about the realm of the resurrected and not been homesick from that hour. Waiting and looking forward to being released from bodily existence. How do we know that dying is so dreadful? Who knows whether in our human fear and anguish, we're only shivering and shuddering at the most glorious, heavenly blessed event in the world. Does anybody want to say amen to that? Death is hell and night and cold if it is not transformed by our faith. But just, that is just what is so marvelous that we can transform death. Through Jesus, we can transform death. In his most famous book, The Cost of Discipleship, Bonhoeffer said these famous words, when Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. Uh, As the um, mission teams, the short-term mission teams we're gonna dedicate right now, come on up. Let me read 2 Timothy 4, verse 6. Paul says, For I am already being poured out like a drink offering, and the time for my departure is near. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Now there is in store for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have longed for his appearing.